Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today joining us is Imran Ali. Imran, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Imran is the Assistant Criminal Division Chief, Chief Human Trafficking Prosecutor for the East Metro Sex Trafficking Task Force in the Washington County Attorney's Office. So Imran is joining us today because we are going to be speaking about prosecuting child trafficking. And since this is our first discussion on prosecuting child trafficking on the podcast, we have a lot of groundwork to do. So Imran, let's start with a two-part question. How do these prosecutions begin in most instances, and how are victims of child trafficking even identified? Usually they begin like any other law enforcement-initiated investigation. There's reactive and there's proactive investigation. The reactive is what we see all the time. If there's an assault, if there's you know, a burglary, a robbery, it's law enforcement reacting. Sometimes in child sex trafficking cases, law enforcement's reacting. They're reacting to maybe a domestic in a home, or maybe they've received a mandated report from a sexual assault examination. And so oftentimes we see that as being one of the primary ways where law enforcement is reacting to some sort of child exploitation or trafficking. But what we're seeing now, especially in Minnesota, and I would say probably around the country, is a proactive way to identify child trafficking victims. We see those through runaway reports, through truancy, through child protection, through juvenile delinquency, even through adult criminal cases, which maybe on its face would look as if it's a maybe a criminal matter or just simply a runaway or a kid who's skipping school. But by looking in it further and by really, you know, flagging those cases and some of those indicators that you see there is essentially proactively identifying some of these cases. And so it is a little different with I mean, not even child with adult trafficking cases as well, that reactive versus proactive. But I certainly have seen both of them in the prosecutions that I've done over the years. To answer your second question, how do they begin? You know, I kind of did. That's kind of how a lot of these cases are initiated. And so one of the first questions we always ask is, is the child safe? And so if the child's not safe or we don't know where the child is, our ultimate goal is that we do everything we can to locate that child. And then we can start again with that investigation. Thank you so much for giving us some of that background. I know for many of us, child trafficking has come up on the news in a level that we haven't really seen before. And so I'm just wondering if there are any myths or misconceptions around child trafficking that we should highlight for our listeners before we jump in further into our prosecuting conversation. Is there anything that you can highlight for our listeners? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, you know, obviously, the more awareness that's out there, just in the you know the several years that I have been focused on trafficking, is great because people now understand what to look for to know it actually exists. If you look ten years ago, you weren't having prosecutions at this volume for trafficking because again, they were masked in other ways, and we weren't looking at it the right way. But there are 
a plethora of myths and misconceptions. I've heard anything from, oh, well, this only involves foreign-born nationals. They're strangers. In other words, they're people that are kidnapping our children from the streets and selling them online. Or this only happens in large metro areas. I live in a rural area, so therefore this is not an issue. I've heard this only involves one sort of ethnic group, one sort of race, and they're the ones that are responsible for trafficking. All of those are complete myths. The children that we see, not only in Minnesota, where I prosecute, but all around the country, these children are in rural and urban areas. And so the only question to really ask yourself is that child exploitation can occur anywhere that a child is. And so children are everywhere, whether it's rural or whether it's in the urban area, and it's happening everywhere. And if there's a child there, that child is potentially being exploited. It's really how we go about finding that. And so those are definitely some misconceptions that I have seen that people just think that, well, it's not happening here. Or maybe if I'm a prosecutor listening, well, I've never prosecuted one. I guarantee you, if you look, and you put those infrastructures in place, you will find maybe perhaps not trafficking, but for sure exploitation, which is one of the early signs or potential down the line for trafficking. The other thing that I've seen is an emergence on social media of a campaign of, you know, save the children. And again, it's bringing that awareness, which is great because child sex trafficking is indeed a tractable problem. And it's during COVID time, we've definitely seen an increase here in Minnesota. But if you look at all of the, you know, the items that are coming on social media, people falsely being kidnapped, you know, that never happened. And there's false reports of that that are being circulated by these sorts of groups. I've seen one where it says that if you put a zip tie on a windshield wiper, that that is a sign for the general public that somebody in the vehicle is being trafficked. I mean, none of this is true. And so what I would always tell people, and every time that I present, I say, look, if you see something that doesn't make any sense or you have a gut reaction to it, you can call law enforcement. But to learn more, the Polaris Project is a great, great website to learn what is the truth and what really is out there. And what you'll see is that all of those myths and misconceptions are simply that. Okay, great. Thank you. It was very insightful. So like you said, there has been a social media campaign. Uh, I've seen it as well for Save the Children and you know, certainly great to see so many people trying to get educated and get involved. So thank you for helping all of us get a little bit more educated on what we can do to be more effective in that. Well, let's continue on. From my research, it seems to me that there are some unique challenges around trauma and victim involvement during a child trafficking prosecution. Not that it's the only sort of prosecution where you'd have to worry about trauma, but it does have its own unique challenges, it seems. So what can you share with us about these challenges and how to address them? Well, many of the prosecutors that are listening have been in trial on a child sexual assault case, and everybody can all agree that those cases are the most difficult cases to prosecute. The accuser, our victim, oftentimes knows the defendant, and that victim has to come into court, has to testify, has to be subject to cross-examination, while their accuser, sometimes their father, sometimes their cousin, their brother, their boyfriend, their husband, is sitting in the courtroom. 
And that's a very, very traumatic experience uh, for a victim to do. But ultimately, our justice system, that's the way it's formulated. And it's formulated for the right reasons. That confrontation clause is something that's important to every one of us. And as I think all of us would agree, is a cornerstone to our justice system. But what I realized about prosecuting my first human trafficking cases is that they're very different. Oftentimes in the child sexual assault cases, we don't have DNA. We don't have evidence. We have a child who makes a report. And oftentimes it's difficult to corroborate some of that evidence. And so we ultimately are in the decision about charging a case and prosecuting the case. In trafficking cases, it's a little different because what we have is we have evidence that's built around that. Because with the sexual trafficking of these minors, there's a lot of digital evidence that's out there that can actually not only corroborate what the victim has reported, but also bolster and add details to it. And so we're dealing with, remember, I mean, we have this child and you know, child sexual rape cases. Those are the most difficult cases. When you look at these cases, you not only have the trauma of the sexual assault, you have likely history of prior sexual assault. You have usually chemical and you have mental health issues with our victims. Oftentimes in the trafficking and the sexual assault, you have violence, force, fraud, coercion, manipulation. So if you look at like the layers of trauma that are associated with these victims, they are extremely difficult to really get a handle on. And so I often say, uh, I tell all my colleagues that I will prosecute any first degree homicide trial any day over a child sex trafficking case because they are very difficult. And so one of the things that I have been training for the last five years on in these cases is for us in law enforcement, prosecution, police, for us to work these cases as if we take the burden off of the victim. And so what does that mean? That means that we collect as much forensic, electronic evidence that corroborates what the victim is saying. I personally often meet with my coordinator with a trafficking victim within 24 hours of them being recovered. The reason of that is to develop that rapport very, very early on. And right away, I let them know, and again, some of the listeners may disagree with me, but I let them know that I will never force them to do anything. I will not tell them that they have to come in and that they have to testify because what they were in before was somebody telling them what to do and how to do it. And I don't want to emulate, you know, those sort of signs of the traffickers. And so what we do in our task force is we spend a considerable amount of time doing warrants, whether they're Facebook warrants, Instagram warrants, Uber warrants, we do pen orders, you know, we've done wires. And so it's really, it's building that case around our victim. And to date, I've never had an issue where that has come up and it only aids what the victim says. The other thing is because the emergence of cell phones and technology, there are, depending on how your statute is constructed, there are ways that we can prosecute this case if, for instance, the victim does not want to testify. And so we choose not to put them on the stand or oftentimes we can't find the victim. A lot of people have told me like, no, you're never going to succeed in prosecuting a case without a victim. I'm going to be doing it shortly on a child sex trafficking case in a few months. But this January of 2020, I actually tried to a jury my first sex trafficking case. 
several dozen witnesses, hundreds of pieces of evidence, but not one victim came in to testify. And the jury convicted in less than 30 minutes. So it's definitely doable. It takes a considerable amount of effort to really take that burden off of the victim. I think our listeners will agree with me that that is really helpful insight that you just provided there, especially the part about building a case even without a victim coming forward. Because I imagine with child trafficking, just based on a lot of those unique issues that you just highlighted, that there would be a lot of, it, it's, it's not hard to imagine the factors that would prevent someone from feeling like they wanted to come in and testify. So I, I think that what you just shared is so valuable. So thank you for sharing your experiences with us. Let's talk more about some trial issues or strategies that prosecutors should be mindful of as they move forward with their prosecutions. Yeah, I mean, our motto is the child, our victim, the child tells us who and the evidence tells us how. And if you can have that from the very beginning, from the very inception, I think you'd be successful at prosecuting these cases. I think first and foremost, the earlier as a prosecutor that you get on a case, the better. We're in a multidisciplinary format where in my office, I have full-time police detectives. I have Department of Homeland Security. I have criminal analysts. I have paralegals. So I have a lot of resources at my disposal that I'm able to really work these sorts of cases. But some of the trial issues that come up is the foundational issues. Obviously, when you prosecute these cases, you have a lot of digital evidence and you now turn into flying everybody around the country to get that foundational evidence in. I have not had it be an issue because it's oftentimes that digital evidence cuts both ways. And so stipulations are extremely important. One of the ways that I've really found helpful in not only the trials, but also in cases resolving, is that once your investigation is done and you have a case and it's presented and it's done via either a complaint or an indictment, is that you have the detectives look further into the phones and try to find sex buyers. The reason sex buyers are important is because they really paint a picture of how the operation is run. And you will be surprised at what they will say on the stand. And so in every trafficking case, I always request law enforcement in the text messages to find the sex buyers, because oftentimes that's where the communication is occurring. Go and interview them. They're probably going to freak out. They're probably going to get a lawyer. I'm probably going to get a phone call. But 100% of the time, they give a statement. I've never had it happen where they don't. And if they don't give a statement, they're potentially looking at charges just based on the evidence that I have. And so in those trials, I think sex buyers are extremely important. I've had sex buyers actually identify the pimp as dropping the child off. I've had sex buyers talk about the operation. I've had them Venmo money to and There's so much that's in there that a lot of people really don't look at as a strategy. And I know I already addressed about not promising the victim anything about testifying. I think that is really important not to emulate, you know, the signs of a trafficker. And lastly, I'll say this, and I think every prosecutor listening knows this, but out of every case that I prosecuted on human trafficking, I will tell you that jail calls and jail letters are a golden nugget of information. These traffickers are manipulative by their nature. 
And so when they are arrested and they are incarcerated, they are backed into a corner. They will contact the victim or they will through a third party contact the victim. And it's important that not only are they intercepted, but you listen to them. And so every one of my cases, I make sure the jail calls are listened to immediately. And in a lot of cases, right away, not only do I have those no contact order violations, I've issued charges for witness tampering as well. And so what you do before a meeting, really being hands-on with the case early on to all of the preservation of evidence and how are you going to get it through. And lastly, even after the arrest, it doesn't stop. Those jail calls and jail letters, all of that stuff is really a treasure trove of information that you could use in trial. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing all of that. I can't help but feel, might seem a little bit odd, but I want to express some gratitude for your work. As we talk about children in this scenario, I just can't help but feel like, yes, get them. <laughs> Maybe not like, I don't mean it to sound like vindictive, but this is great to hear the insight on all of these tools that you have available and that you're employing. And that's just, we want to protect them and prevent. And this is incredible to hear this work that's happening from where I sit. I actually have a little bit of personal history. I'm working with an organization that fought child trafficking in Guatemala myself. So this topic definitely resonates with me on a different level. So if you'll allow me, just want to give you a little applause from myself and uh, say thank you for the work that you're doing. So kind of moving on to that broader topic of child trafficking, you've done a great job of speaking to prosecution. If I may, for a moment, just take us out in a bigger picture piece of, about child trafficking. Many of us have seen the news about the separation of families. There's a documentary that has come out that is highlighting what has happened at the border. And I know that's the opposite border of the one that you're near. But Imran, I'm wondering if you can help shed some light or just give some contextual thoughts on maybe the reports of some of the children that are still separated from their families, reportedly being the victims of child trafficking, maybe not even knowing that they're the victims of child trafficking. And I'm just wondering if for our listeners, we'll take it for what it is, which is just, you know, not firsthand experience in these sort of prosecutions and investigation at that border, of course, because it's out of your jurisdiction. But is there anything you can share with us about that? You know, I think like you just said, I mean, I can provide, I, I don't have any firsthand knowledge. What you see is what I have seen with the reports, child victims, and the separation of families that's occurred at the border. I think one of the things that I, and again, I, I, without knowing what's happening down there, I can anecdotally talk about what's happening here. And we do see child victims. You know, we've been talking a lot about child sex trafficking, but there's a considerable amount of, you know, human trafficking, which is labor trafficking as well. And one of the people in our task force is from the Department of Homeland Security. And I know there's people have sometimes a visceral reaction when I say that I work with somebody from the Department of Homeland Security. But what I can tell you is this, because I've been doing it so long and because there are people out there that trust me, they know that if they report something to me, they know that I'm not going to tell anybody. And they know that like when it's right or when it's the right time that I can forward that on. 
that sort of rapport has really, really led to some groundbreaking work in Minnesota, not only on the labor trafficking, but on the sex trafficking. And so, you know, as I sit here and talk to you, I have immigration attorneys and I'm a prosecutor that will contact me because they have perhaps a labor trafficking or a sex trafficking victim, but because of immigration reasons are worried about making any sort of report. And so as I counsel them through that about making a report, I ultimately bring in the Department of Homeland Security. And in every case that I have worked where I brought them in under that sort of trust and understanding, it's resulted in victims, you know, being given the benefits of not being deported, of allowing themselves to be a victim and report abuse that's occurred. And so what I can say what's happening on our southern border out there is I hope that those federal officials even the state officials that are down there are screening those. And if there is reports of trafficking, that they are taking them seriously, that they are interviewing the victims and they're not treating them like criminals, but they're treating them like victims. I would hope that they would do what we're doing in Minnesota. And other than that, you know, without having any firsthand knowledge, you know, that's all I have. Right. Yeah. There's obvious limitations on what you can share. So I appreciate any insight. Thank you for that, for speaking to it. So we've covered a lot in this interview. Before we wrap up, is there anything of note that we've missed in our discussion that you think anyone who works in the space of child trafficking, whether it's being a prosecutor or someone that's working on the victim protection side or anything like that, do you think, is there anything else that we've missed that we should add? Five years ago, I had never prosecuted a human trafficking case. And it's not that I didn't think they existed. I just didn't think it was out there and it wasn't in my community. And so I think if you're listening and you're a prosecutor or you're a victim advocate or just interested in this area, if you are in a jurisdiction where the prosecution or investigation is not occurring and you have the ability to do so, start investigating these cases, start prosecuting these cases, and start looking for those indicators that are out there. Because on its face, it may be a domestic case, but when you look further, it's that exploitation and trafficking and those sentencing differences between a domestic and a trafficking cases, at least in Minnesota, there's an extreme difference, definitely more punitive on the trafficking. And I think that you know the listeners out there that don't really have any experience in these cases, I think you'll be surprised at what you find, no matter where you're located. Great. Thank you. That's a strong finish for us. So I'll leave it there. So thank you again, Imran. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.